0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises off. LinkedIn News.
1: How can you incorporate a bit more playfulness or fun into something that you do today?
0: Hey, everybody. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. And today I'm sitting down with Katherine Price. She's an author and an award-winning science journalist who wrote the book How to Break Up with Your Phone back in 2018. During her research, she discovered the average person was spending four hours a day on their phone, which I bet has increased since that book was written. At the time, though, that was 60 days a year, which is pretty concerning when you think about the amount of time you're spending on a device. We know that phone time means we're probably not focused on what really matters to us. So she started to look for things that brought joy, happiness, and then asked herself what the word fun meant in her life. Now... Her latest book is called The Power of Fun. And she says that by intentionally incorporating enjoyable activities into our lives, regardless of age or life circumstance, by recognizing and embracing the power of fun, we can enhance our overall well-being, we can nurture our relationships, and we can cultivate a more joyful and fulfilling existence. The challenge is we don't always know how to incorporate more fun into our everyday lives. I know it sounds simple, but this is really meaningful stuff. So here's Catherine to tell us more. My
1: intention is to help people achieve better screen life balance. And that in turn to me means helping people scroll less and live more. And to me, fun is a part of the second half of that equation. So helping us to be more fully alive. That is ultimately my driving purpose in what I do helping us to be more fully alive. Tell me about that. That is the goal of life. And if we were able to feel more alive, a lot of other things would work themselves out. And like you, I've got a background in researching and writing and talking about positive psychology. I was trained as a science journalist. I have a really deep interest in figuring out the effects that our physical environments and our behaviors have on us physically and mentally and emotionally. And I'm also just personally committed to trying to make the most out of my own life. And I've been trying to translate in, that into my professional life as well. I mean, I like to say I turn my personal issues into professional projects. So this is all kind of a... <laughs> You
0: and me both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So that's my motivating force at the moment.
0: Okay, so I got to be honest, it's like scary to feel like we actually have to have a phrase called screen life balance, but you're not wrong. (laughs) What do you know? Well, okay, so obviously we all know what that is.
1: Well, I don't know, do we? I'm not sure. So I wrote a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone that came out in 2018. Before the pandemic, the average person was spending about four hours a day on their phones. Based on the best statistics I could find, actual measurements, not self-reported. That (laughs) was just phones, not all the other devices and screens. And if you do the math, that adds up to 60 full days a year, which is a quarter of our time awake. And I realized, oh, my goodness, you know, I think technology is amazing. I think there's many great uses for our phones and for all of our other devices. But I also know that on my deathbed, I'm not going to wish I spent more time staring at a screen. So that is, in fact, why I started Screen Life Balance, because I wanted to help people create better boundaries and more intentional relationships with technology. And I think that that is becoming more and more important, given how much more time even that we're spending now I think that work-life balance is somewhat irrelevant now because work has come home with us. So it's all kind of blended together and our boundaries have become so eroded. And I think that our lack of screen life balance is a major source of burnout and just disillusionment and disconnection and just feeling exhausted all the time.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Last weekend, I decided to finally watch The Social Dilemma, the documentary, which is for our listeners. Essentially, it's interviewing people who created some of the platforms we all use most and the reason we generally don't have screen life balance. So, you know, like the Instagrams, the Facebooks or Metas, the Gmail app. I think the overarching theme is we have to be more aware and awake of how we use it, but how we think about the way that it's inched into our lives in such a way that it's become an appendage to use a phone, which is generally connected to social media. So I'm always left feeling like, oh, my God, I'm certainly not immune from being addicted to my phone, but I've been really thoughtful about how I use it. I don't keep my phone in my room at night. But I do find that maybe there's a feeling of like fear or annoyance when you start talking about screen life balance. Like, do you get that sense? And yeah, do people really want screen life balance? I think that they do But they might
1: just feel like it's impossible. And so the temptation is to throw up your hands and say, it's too late or, you know, I can't do that. But I think if you get to the root of what I'm hoping to help people with, which is really living an intentional life, one that's joyful and meaningful and healthy, I think that we all do want that. And my hope is to raise awareness of the role that our relationships with technology is playing in our feelings of burnout and exhaustion and to give people practical tools and resources they can use to begin to create better boundaries. One of the most heartening things I've heard from people who have read How to Break Up With Your Phone, as an example, is that even the process of beginning to think about this actually is improvement. Mm -hmm. Once you start to just think about it, you actually start to make changes without making effort. And I've heard from a number of people who have told me something along the lines of, you know, if you start a diet or a new exercise program or something like that, it can take weeks, if not months, plus a lot of willpower and self-control to see a difference. But if you start to think about technology and change your way you interact with it, you start to feel the effects within days. And that's really motivating and I think very empowering to people who might at first feel kind of a sense of despair and frustration when they first think about screen life balance.
0: Yeah. What's a question that you would tell people they could ask themselves or consider so that they can become more aware of whether or not they have screen life balance?
1: What do you want to pay attention to? And the reason I say that as a guiding question is that ultimately our lives are defined by what we pay attention to. Mm -hmm. By which I mean, you're only going to experience what you're paying attention to, right? Like, I have no idea what's happening outside this room right now. I'm entirely focused on our conversation. Mm -hmm. And you're only going to remember what you pay attention to. So just to have experiences and memories, you need to pay attention. The decision of where I spend my attention in the moment really represents a broader decision about how I'm choosing to live my life. And that's been so powerful for me personally. I actually had a bracelet made that says pay attention as a reminder. Mm. So I think that that's a really powerful first question to ask. I think one of the mistakes people make when you start to think about phone use or screen life balance is that you start to get into the details of turning your phone to black and white or turning off notifications. I mean, Mm -hmm. these can be useful things to do, but you have to have an overall reason and motivation for doing so. And it can't just be from a place of restriction. There's no point in saying, I'm going to cut back on screen time if you don't have any idea why you're doing it or how it relates to your life priorities. So I recommend people start with what seems like a very simple question, but one that's ultimately quite profound. So what do you want to pay attention to? Once you figure that out, if it's your family, if it's your friends, if it's part of your career, if it's a passion that you have, then it becomes easier to recognize how your interactions with technology are or are not helping you achieve that goal. And then you can start to change your habits Mm -hmm. with a real clear sense of purpose, not just out of a sense of arbitrary restriction.
0: Right. So Mm -hmm. long term punishing yourself is only going to end in you going back to the thing and maybe even doing it more because you've deprived yourself versus, I mean, positive psychology. It's about like Mm -hmm. how do you engineer a life where you thrive because you are moved to live fully because of the desire to experience meaning, purpose and connection when you think about what you want to pay attention to, that's a much more powerful place to start than how many hours do you want to spend on your phone?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because you need to know what you want to do with your hours in general. And for me, then it just helps make things so much clearer. If I'm like, oh, something I really want to pay attention to is music because it brings me joy, Mm -hmm. right? Then I'm like, well, okay, if I've got a half hour chunk of time and I've got a choice between practicing something on the piano or like playing with friends versus looking at social media, the choice is so clear. It just clarifies things for me to really think about what I want to pay attention to and then evaluate all the minute-to-minute decisions about my attention based on my answer to that larger question of attention.
0: What you want to pay attention to then alludes to what your values are and what matters to you. And I think a lot of times people go, I don't know what my values are. All these things that make us feel like we're so far away from the things, we just give up, throw our hands up, like you said, and then go back to our phones or whatever we're doing Uh because it's easier and it's distracting and some of these big questions can feel like a lot. This is a really simple way To go, oh, if I want to pay attention to these things, it must mean that these things are important to me for some reason. It probably means it's tied to a value, whether it be that like for you, it's music is great because you love the sound of it. You love the feel, but also because you love the connection you have with the people you play with that's a value.
1: Yeah. And I think that it works in the opposite direction, too, in the sense that if you ask people what their values are, a lot of times we'll say things that are kind of platitudes like, oh, my family is very important to (laughs) me. Right. But then to me, asking yourself, what are you paying attention to and how does it align with that supposed value is very clarifying because it's like Mm -hmm. you said you want to pay attention to your family. Well, when you're doing bedtime with your kids, is your phone in the room? Are you kind of having an eye on work email, Mm -hmm. you know, at the dinner table? That does not align with what you just told me is very important to you. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's very clarifying because then I've heard many people say like, oh, wait, that was kind of a light bulb moment that I'm not actually living in a way that aligns with what I said was important. Then it becomes much easier to change that habit because there's a fundamental disconnect between who you say you
0: are and want to be and how you're behaving. So I think Mm -hmm. it can be very empowering. When I'm working with people in a coaching context, I always have them start off with this thing called the wheel of life, which is an eight sectioned wheel that has basically the eight things we all care about in life. So family, friendships, romance, physical environment, career or work, personal growth or spirituality, and then fun and recreation is one. Oh, nice. And so, yes, so hence hence (laughs) wanting to talk to you. The point is we all have different recipes for what fulfillment looks like, and it's really about becoming more aware of your recipe and understanding what that would mean in practice. Hmm. So I got to you because I saw your TED Talk about fun, and it's an important piece of this wheel. It's one that I don't know if I pay a lot of attention to, maybe because I make up that like I am always having fun. I don't know, but maybe I'm not. What got you from fully being more alive to screen time to fun?
1: Yes. You know, I will say just to start though, I actually think that fun should be sprinkled into all of the parts on that wheel into work and into your relationships, into everything, because fun is almost like salt. Like it will actually enliven, make things-
0: Ooh, yeah, like I like that
1: metaphor. Yeah, I me too. I just came up with that, but I really do think that's true. It like enhances all aspects of life. But if you can bring more of it into all of those things, you're gonna end up enjoying them more and finding more meaning. Everything's gonna be brighter and better with a touch of fun. The way that I came to this is that I did have a longstanding interest both personal and professional, in health and wellness and in what led me to positive psychology. But I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 22, and that really got me interested in nutrition and also just in the general effects that, as I was saying, our physical environments and the inputs that we put into our bodies have on us physically and in other capacities as well. I had never thought to focus on technology in particular, but then I had my daughter in 2015, and I had... These moments of self-awareness where I would notice that I would be with her in the middle of the night and she would be looking up at me and then I'd be looking down at my phone Mm. and it gave me the awareness to recognize, wait, this does not align with what I say is important to me. And it's also not the impression I want My daughter to have of a human relationship, let alone with her mom. And based on my background in science journalism, that I also was deeply disturbed by what effect it might have on her to not have this bonding that comes from eye contact between a parent and a child. So I was deeply disturbed by it. And I decided to turn that personal issue into a professional project. That's what led to how to break up with your phone, because at that Mm -hmm. time I found a number of books that were kind of sounding the alarm on some of the potential effects that our interactions with screens and devices could be having on us, in particular in terms of our attention spans and ability to think deeply. The point of breaking up with your phone is not to dump it. We're not like throwing our phones into a river unless you want to, but it's really about creating a healthier relationship, a new and healthier one. So I did that. And then I realized that opens up a whole new can of worms, which is that once you reclaim time, then you need to figure out how you want to spend that time. And I had a kind of this existential crisis in this very room Mm -hmm. where I realized, oh my goodness, I've lost sight of what I want to focus on and what I want to spend my time on. So I ended up asking myself this question that I asked people when I was writing How to Break Up With Your Phone. And the question was, What's something I say I want to do, but I supposedly don't have time for? Which is something I'd suggest listeners ask themselves as well. My personal answer was learn to play the guitar, because I played piano since I was a child. And I had a guitar my grandmother gave me money for in college. I was really close to her, but I never learned to play it. But I ended up signing up for this guitar class at a children's music studio. It was like a nighttime guitar class. And I just started to notice that this class was becoming something I looked forward to for the whole week. And it was giving me this sense of energy and release and freedom and joy that was very energizing. But there was something more about the energy that this class was producing. And I got obsessed with trying to figure out, well, what's the word that describes this feeling? And this is going to sound like a very dumb revelation, but eventually I was like, oh, it's fun.
0: (laughs) I'm having fun. We're taking a quick break. When we get back, Catherine Price is going to help us learn ways we can incorporate fun into our day-to-day lives. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, T.I.A.A. makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org dot backslash promises pay off. Have you been feeling the effects of stress, burnout or anxiety at work? Workplace
1: culture is changing, but we're not done yet. Listen to the Anxious Achiever podcast to rethink the relationship between your career and your mental health. Hear stories from psychologists, entrepreneurs, even athletes and celebrities. Learn how they balance success and ambition with staying mentally healthy. And walk
0: away with practical advice you can implement today. Get the Anxious Achiever wherever you find your podcasts. And we're back with award-winning science journalist and author, Katherine Price. So how do you define fun, then, based on what you understand?
1: So I define fun as being the confluence of three states, which are playfulness, connection, and flow. And it's a definition that I attempted to validate by collecting stories from people around the world. I've got thousands of stories now about past memories from their own lives that stand out to them as having truly been fun. I have descriptions of these stories, and then I ask people, after they told me the stories, like, would this definition apply? And people said it would. So I like to clarify what I mean by those three states. Playfulness in particular can really make adults clench up and get very anxious because I think we've lost touch with playfulness and we tend to confuse it with childish play or being silly. And that's not what I mean. Playfulness is much more of an attitude that you bring to things where you are kind of letting go of perfectionism And you're doing things for the sake of doing them and not getting overly wrapped up in what the outcome might be. So having kind of a spirit of exploration and experimentation, you know, letting yourself laugh, finding the absurdity in things. Yeah. The other two elements that I think define fun, talked about playfulness, Connection is the feeling of having a special shared experience with someone else. And it was very interesting to me to see that in the vast majority of stories people shared with me, there was another person involved. And this was true even for introverts. And people actually commented on it. I asked people, did anything about what you just told me surprise you? A number of people said something along the lines of, I'm an introvert but actually all the stories I just told you involved other people. So I think it's less about the need for human connection and more about what type of connection enables you to let go and have fun. And then the third element of fun is flow, which gets to that sense of letting go and being present. And that's basically a term created by the Hungarian psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi that means being totally engrossed and engaged, actively engaged in your present experience, often to the point that you lose track of time. And it's what we typically think of as being, quote, in the zone, whether it's a work project or a really engaging conversation or the quintessential example tends to be an athlete in the middle of a game or a musician playing a piece of music. You're totally focused and engaged. And it's important to note that you cannot be in flow if you're distracted. That's like the anti-definition of <laughs> flow. It's also not passive consumption. You can lose track of time staring at Instagram, right. but Hay would have called that junk flow because it's not actually being active. So, Playfulness and connection and flow are all great on their own. I believe when all three happen at once, the center of that Venn diagram is the feeling of what I call true fun. And it's a really magical, joyful, and interestingly, physiologically very healthy and positive state to be in. That has all sorts of benefits that stand in complete contrast to what we typically think of when we think of
0: fun. Tell me about the physiological benefits.
1: Yeah, I find this fascinating. So this gets into my total endocrinology kind of dorkiness with type one diabetes, but but, you know, I think it's pretty well known by this point that being emotionally stressed out is bad for you over time. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with the impact that emotional stress has on our levels of our stress hormones, more specifically cortisol, our primary stress hormone. Cortisol is very important if you're trying to respond to a physical threat. It does things like increase your blood pressure and your blood glucose and your heart rate, right? Like very important if you actually need to run away from something. But if the stressor is, for example, like an email, then you've just basically gotten yourself primed to flee when you're stuck at your desk. It's not the right response. If you think about some of these physiological effects of cortisol – it makes sense why elevated levels of cortisol over time are strongly associated with increased risks of, for example, like heart attack and stroke and type 2 diabetes, right? It's very bad over time to have that hormone stay elevated. So anything that reduces stress is going to have a positive effect on us physiologically. And fun is a very low-stressed, relaxed state. I think it's less well-known, or at least acknowledged at this point, that social isolation and loneliness actually have the same effects on us, yeah. likely because they also spike cortisol. And there's really fascinating research on this. For example, there's a really well-regarded meta-analysis that found that the risks of loneliness and isolation in terms of health were similar to those of smoking fifteen one five yeah. cigarettes a day. That's astonishing. If you're lonely and isolated, it actually can affect you down to the level at which your genes are expressed, meaning which genes are turned on and off at particular times, which in turn influences your risks for disease. So the fact that fun, by my definition, is a socially connected and engaged state, makes me personally hypothesize that it would also help us in that regard by making us feel less stressed but also socially engaged. It's having positive effects on our baseline hormones in ways that make us healthier. And to me, that's mind-blowing because it means that far from being frivolous, this is actually a health intervention.
0: Correct. Well, and it's like many of us grew up in the period where we thought like our genes are just our genes. That's how you live. Like the ability to be happy or enjoy life can be a genetic thing or happiness is a genetic thing. Uh, What you're telling me and what I'm hearing is The experiences we have day to day are, for many of us, are experiences that raise our cortisol levels, which is a hormone that is part of stress. And that pumps adrenaline through our body. It helps us get prepared for crazy things that we would have to do to survive when in reality we're just late to a meeting by three minutes, right? right? So, and I didn't know this part, feeling socially isolated or lonely also raises cortisol. I did not know that. So more stress, right? Loneliness and isolation is happening more and more now than it ever has.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, the Surgeon General has made loneliness actually one of his top priorities as Surgeon General to try to address. There's a minister of loneliness in the UK. It's very, very yeah. British.
0: Very pro- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that, that sounds like a tough job. So but what you're also saying is fun is its own three part system. So it's not just one of those things. It's all of those things and that we can engineer experiences like that.
1: Yes. And this is where it starts to sound really unfun. And one of my friends is like, that is possibly the least fun thing I've ever heard in my life. And I was like, that's a good point. Um, One of my goals is that I like the idea of taking something that's abstract and then breaking it down into something that's more concrete. I mean, one of my issues with happiness is that it's so intangible. It's very hard to define, right? There's whole books written about it. And to me, fun is at least one step closer to something tangible, by which I mean If I were to ask you, what's happiness? or Are you happy? We'd have to start with that big philosophical discussion of what it means. If I ask you, did you have fun last weekend, you probably have a much better gut sense of whether the answer is yes or no. So then to me, the next step is, okay, well, if we kind of have a better sense of whether something felt fun, what is fun? Like, what are the parts? That's where playfulness and connection and flow come in, because... I think that, as I said, each of those states is very good for us and feels very good on its own. So just focusing on those in isolation is positive. But if we say, okay, well, I'm going to try to have more fun by building in as many opportunities for playfulness and or connection and or flow into my life, even if you only succeed at one of those, you're better off. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is to ask, well, how do you do that? How do you build more playfulness and connection and flow into your life? In terms of the workplace and education, I would think it's just so wrong for us to think of these of fun and play as being inappropriate in a work and educational context. Because if you think about it, when you're having fun, you're enjoying yourself. You're engaged. You're totally present. You're on. You're on. That's how you learn. Mm -hmm. It's how you stay motivated. You're very motivated, intrinsically motivated to stay in a state of play and fun because they feel good. So you're in the state where your brain is totally open to absorbing information. Your creativity is peaked. Your guard is down. Your inner critic is off. You're collaborative. You're creative. Your memory is like working. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's what you want to have happening when you're at work or at school. That's what the goal should be. So I just think it's so misguided for us to think that these are categories that should be separate.
0: So I guess what we're saying, and the reason I was excited by what you said, I love formulas for things. And I I know (laughs) life is not a formula. You know, my goal is very similar to yours. I want to give people an understanding of how to approach things that feel historically inaccessible, and are so powerful to how we live lives that we are actually so damn excited to live, you know? And so I'm like, that's what I want. And everyone has their own way of doing that. And that's why I like the formula idea, because we're not all the same. We don't all need the same things. But I think what we're getting at, and the reason I was excited, is... Oftentimes we also associate fun with being random. It almost feels like this elusive thing. Like, I don't know why I just got an image of the Lucky Charms leprechaun, but I'm like, like, I can't catch it. You can't catch it. It just happens. And so what I hear you say is that there's less of it just happens. It's something that we can cultivate.
1: Yeah, you can set the stage for it. I like the image of the leprechaun. I also think of it as being kind of like romance, where like you can light some candles, but if you force it, it's going to run away. You know, Right, correct. <laughs> like, you have to, so how do we do that? And I think that starts with having a better understanding of what the settings and the people and the activities are that typically result in fun for us. So I should start by saying, I think an important clarification for people to make is that fun is a feeling, it's not an activity. Mm-hmm. And just to expand on that is that, many times we just associate fun with an activity. I mean, that leads to a lot of problems. First of all, it leads to the perception that you have to have money and time to have fun. Like if you're like, oh, skiing is often fun for me. Well, that's really freaking expensive and you need to go on vacation to do it. So that's not necessarily that helpful. But also the same activity can be really fun one time and really not fun another time, even if you're doing the exact same thing. So fun is a feeling. But Mm -hmm. with that said, we each do have a collection of activities and I would argue settings and people that are more likely to generate fun for us than others. And I, I call those our fun magnets. So I'd say one of the first steps, if you want to have more fun in your life and kind of build more of it into your life is to look back on your life and call to mind a couple of experiences that stand out to you as having really truly been fun. And it might be hard at first to think of these moments, but once you start, you'll get going because they don't have to be profound. There was one story someone told me when I was writing my book about having a moment of true fun that involved nothing more than going out into a rainstorm with their grandfather without umbrellas and just allowing themselves to deliberately get soaked. And that was just so fun to them, which I think is such a beautiful example. And anyway, write down a couple of these and then just ask yourself, like, who was involved? What were you doing? And where were you? And start to see if there are themes that emerge. Like clearly for me, playing music with particular groups of friends, that's a fun magnet for me. Or hosting dinner parties with my husband, definite fun magnet. Once you start to identify what those magnets are for you, then you can start to prioritize them. And again, you can't always guarantee that fun is going to result. I can guarantee you that hosting a dinner party with my husband or playing music with my music friends is much more likely to result in fun than spending the same amount of time at home alone staring at my work email. So I think that this is all about giving us tools to make more intentional use of our leisure time and hopefully bring some of these elements into our professional lives as well. And then if you want, you can take it a step further and ask, well, what are the characteristics of those people and settings and experiences? Are there any particular characteristics to them that you could then use to generate new ideas? Then you can kind of say, oh, how can I maybe try something new? Because novelty often leads to fun for people. Mm. And I think another important thing for people to do is to recognize that you're probably already having way more fun than you realize. It's just that you haven't had a name for it or paid attention to its elements. And you've probably fallen under the misconception that fun doesn't happen in your everyday life. It's something that happens when you're on vacation. But if you start to think about fun as being any moment of playful, connected flow, then you might start to realize, oh, wait a second, I'm having fun right now in our conversation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had fun last week at a preventive cardiology appointment. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who knew? Who knew? (laughs) knew? You know, I I can have fun at the dog park. Like I can have, like, just these little moments. And I think that's very important because we're very good at noticing things that cause us stress and anxiety. We're much less good at focusing on positive things because that doesn't necessarily help us in our immediate short-term survival. I think it does in the long-term. But anyway, once you start to notice Mm -hmm. that, I think it's really powerful because it's a form of what positive psychologists call savoring actually holding on to positive experiences in the same way that we do negative ones and i like to think about it as being almost like you're creating a necklace of these small little moments of fun And once you kind of have collect these beads, even if they're small, you then can look back and enjoy them. And that itself is an enjoyable state to be in. So anyway, I think that it can be useful to start a practice at the end of the day of looking back at your day and noticing whether you had any moments, no matter how small of playfulness or connection or flow, again, asking yourself, who are you with? What were you doing? Like, how did that
0: happen? If all three happened, you had true fun. And that's really wonderful. I love that you brought up savoring, is the Daily Doubler, which is something Sean Aker, who's a positive psychology researcher, talks a lot about. You set a timer for two minutes and you write about a positive experience you've had in the last 24 hours. Okay, And you write in as much detail as you can. And so in doing that, and it's only two minutes, it's, I mean, it goes by and Goes by in a flash. In two minutes. <laughs> in two minutes, right. So, like, it's easy to do. You can't, it's it's really hard to be like, I don't have time for that. So in a very short amount of time, you're all of a sudden, right, back where you were when that moment was happening in the last 24 hours, experiencing that good feeling, writing about it, savoring it, and feeling grateful for it. So you're doubling up on the thing that happened. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yes, yes. And one of the things that he said Based on the research, it is so much easier to be negative, to be frustrated, to say we have to be productive. And so that means we can't enjoy. Right. You know, all of those things are much easier than to actually decide you're going to purposefully create joy, purposefully create an experience or set the stage for contentment or fun. And just as I'm saying this, I'm like, maybe fun's a little bit of a vulnerable thing, too. Oh, because yes. Yes. Thank you for touching on that. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, how do I set the stage and what if it doesn't happen? Or is it okay for me to be silly, weird, whatever, and enjoying and fun in front of other people? Yeah. It's interesting you say that. I've been thinking about that a
1: lot because, you know, as I was saying, part of playfulness is having your guard down. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's an element of vulnerability in that happens with fun that's really magical because it doesn't feel vulnerable, but it has the benefits of it. Because your guard is down and you're being truly yourself and you're being authentic. And that's so refreshing. And I think that that partially explains why moments in which we have fun with people are are some of our fondest memories from our lives and some of the most bonding experiences from our lives, because you're actually being yourself. And I think it's also interesting, again, to go back to the theme of work, to think that that's where, again, creativity happens. Because Mm -hmm. if you're judging yourself, your inner critic shutting down all of your ideas before you even say anything, that's not a creative place to be in. So that's one of the things that I've been working on uh, with Fundamentum Labs in these workshops is how do you get people into a state where they're having fun together in the workplace to increase creativity? It's like we have these guardrails, like we're on this very narrow road. And as we move from childhood to adulthood, it's like the lanes begin to narrow and you end up with these very high guardrails on both sides and you forget there's all this stuff, this scenery and this things to be experienced that are beyond the guardrails. And I think yeah. that part of the power of fun is enabling us to lower those guardrails and see what what might be possible and play with it. And amazing things happen when you do that.
0: So, Catherine, if I were to like try to put this all into a nice, fun flow, we started with a question, which is, what do I want to pay attention to? Mm-hmm. So that's the moment that we are pausing to say what matters to me and to start getting clear on how we really want to spend our time just day to day. Then if we're adding in this element of the things that are keeping our attention, we can start to self-observe and say like, well, what's taking my attention now? The high likelihood is a lot of that attention goes to screens, right? And is then the question, then how can I set the stage for more play connectedness and flow? flow? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that What I'd suggest to people is that you try to figure out ways to incorporate more fun into every aspect of your life. How can you bring a little bit more playfulness or a little bit more connection or a little bit more flow into everything that you're doing? And just play around with it. You know, just notice the difference in your energy levels when you actually try to pay attention to those three elements. Notice how much more you remember from your day when you put that intention into your activities. I personally can say that Focusing on those three elements, focusing on fun, it's not going to guarantee that every moment in your life is going to be like the most fun, most memorable experience, but it makes life more vivid and it helps you manage your time better. Again, to add that element of like seasoning to life so that it really does seem brighter and more enjoyable. Everything just seems better. (laughs) So (laughs) that sounds grandiose, but I truly
0: believe it. Fun is the salt of life. (laughs) Fun is the salt of life. Thank you. Come up with a quote. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right, Catherine, I'm going to have you complete these three statements for me. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> better humans are those who are focused on our shared humanity. Better work is fun, <laughs> and a better world has
1: places more value on fun. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Really, I should just expand on it a second. But by saying that I think that we're obviously in a polarized world with lots of very serious problems. But when you have fun with other people, you see them as other humans. And your differences are temporarily erased and you actually connect on a deeper level. And I think that that is absolutely essential in being able to work together to actually address any of the problems that we face. So I'm not just being glib about that. I truly believe there's a power in prioritizing fun.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for joining me, Catherine. I've had a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. So thank you.
1: Nice. Well, thank you so much for having me. I truly, I had a wonderful, fun time talking to you, and I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: That was Katherine Price, author of The Power of Fun. One big thing before we go, I think that ultimately fun is just asking us to show up for the present moment and really be there. When you think about it, you can't have fun if you're regretting the past or you're worrying about the future, which so many of us do. It made me think about this experience where I went to the park over the weekend and it was myself, my boyfriend and our two dogs. And we let the dogs off the leash and they're out playing and we came across just a football randomly that had been put in the park and left there. And within a couple minutes, we were playing catch between myself, my boyfriend, and then trying to keep the dogs from getting the football. I didn't realize till later, which is, it sounds crazy, why I enjoyed this moment so much. What I realized though was we were having fun. We were playing. We didn't have any expectation, we didn't have any purpose in what we were doing, we were just having fun and we were experiencing the joy of that fun. I honestly, I bring this up because I think that it's in the smallest moments that we can find the experiences we think the big moments are going to give us. That was a moment I went, oh my gosh, I would redo that 10 times over again. So if you're trying to figure out how to have more fun, it's like, just show up for the present moment. And if you're wondering what else it does for you, think about the things Catherine shared. Incorporating fun into our lives can help us build resilience, can help us cope with stress, it can help us buffer against burnout, which so many of us experience, and it can increase the positivity in the way we show up in the world, in our mindset. So if this conversation has you thinking about ways to have more fun in your day-to-day life, share it with someone who's looking to learn more about how they can do that too. And help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me what you took away from this conversation on fun. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Drone make sure we sound good in the studio. Joe Georgie mix our show. Enrique Montalbo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Koop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.